0: So at my home church, the church I grew up in, I was the Kevin. Okay? Only one there. Only Kevin there for at least 16 years. And then when I was 16, our church staff hired another man, and his name was Kevin. I couldn't believe it. So We had to differentiate me, Kevin, and that Kevin. And so they decided to call, I think I decided to call me K1 and him K2. Okay, so there's K1 and and K2 because it was hard enough to decide even though he had like 12 years and a beard on me and I was just this little punk high schooler, right? But there's K1 and K2. But it was working out okay that way, so we knew who we were talking about. But then a couple months later, a third Kevin came, as if one Kevin broke open the floodgates. So then we had K1, K2, and K3, naturally. And uh, I remember K2 was pretty punch- pumped to have another Kevin, so he wasn't, you know, the lesser Kevin. And uh, I felt pretty good on the mountain as K1 still. Oddly enough, a few years later, I go off to college. K2 takes another position elsewhere, and K3, uh, life took him in a different direction. And so there were no Kevins until the next head pastor they hired's name was Kevin. And to my knowledge, he's still the only Kevin there. Now, all that to say, it's tough falling lower in the pecking order of Knownness. And, uh, you know, at least so I hear I was K1, I was at the top. I don't actually know. But the three's in the shadow of the two and the one, and the two is in the shadow of the one. And, you know, this happens kind of everywhere you go. I mean, think of this place of hope. For those that don't know, we have at least four dons here. And each of those dons is a Don Van something. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of amazing. And uh, so imagine how Don 1, D1, must feel about D4. And I'm not going to tell you who is who. You guys can figure out (laughs) where the ranking goes. But this happens all over the place. Happens in the Bible as well. See, take the word name Joseph, for instance. J1 is likely the dream interpreter Joseph, who had the amazing coat, the great act of forgiveness we read about in the Old Testament. J2, the faithful, while caught between a rock and a hard place, a husband of Mary, the earthly adoptive father of Jesus. Now J1 and J2, they might be interchangeable, what one comes to mind first when you hear the name Joseph. But not J3. J3 is pretty firmly rooted in his thirdness of Joseph knownness. That's Joseph of Arimathea. And that's our unsung hero today. That's who we're exploring, is that Joseph. Now, interestingly enough, he's mentioned in all four Gospels, which is pretty prominent. Not a lot of folks are mentioned in all four Gospels, but Joseph is. So today we'll read from Luke, but then we'll pull from the other Gospels as well to get a well-rounded picture of this Joseph. So let's open God's true word. Luke 23, verses 50 through 54 is where we're reading today. You're invited to turn to it with me if you'd like. Also be on the screen. Again, that is Luke. That is 23, 50 through 54. Hear now the true word of the Lord. Context. This is right after, right after Jesus' death on the cross. Now there's a man named Joseph. He was a member of the council, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and their action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea and he himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and then he took it down. He wrapped it in linen cloth. He placed it in a tomb cut in the rock, one in which no one had yet been laid. It was preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. We thank God for his true word. So what does this text tell us about Joseph? First, he was a member of the council. The council it refers to, of course, is the Sanhedrin the 70-ish Jewish leaders of that time. We know the Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. They were they were the, the lawyer uh, members of the Sanhedrin. There's no indication that Joseph was a Pharisee, but he was part of the council, the Sanhedrin. Okay, and so that was who he was, but he's also described more internally, he was a good and upright man. That point doesn't usually fit with what we read about the first point. Sanhedrin's not often cast in a positive light. We know why. We know that. But that made it a point to say, Joseph, he's a good and upright man. He voted even against the majority of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, of course, who were plotting all along to have Jesus arrested and killed. Imagine the nonstop political maneuverings that were occurring in that council. And yet Joseph stood his ground and he voted against the action of the majority. He was from Arimathea. We have no idea where that is. <laughs> Scholars place it in a couple possible towns, uh, but we really, this is the only reference to Arimathea we have is in the Gospels. And, and, and each one mentions he's from Arimathea. Uh, all we know is it's a Judean town from which Joseph is from. And then... He was waiting for the kingdom of God. He was good, and he was faithful. He believed the teachings of God. He sought to live them out and to wait for God's own timing. I used to have a hard time with this idea of waiting on the Lord or waiting for the kingdom of God. I'm like, waiting, it feels so passive. But but when you really consider it in context, passive is a possibility part of it, sort of, but it's more of a trusting posture. It's I'm trusting that God will act as God will act when he believes it's right to act. And even how he acts, I will trust to him. So, so waiting is more of a posture of trust than of being passive. Now that's what Luke tells us about Joseph, but let's get a fuller picture. What do the other gospels say? Now there's a lot of overlap, so I won't mention the overlaps, but I'll mention the new things we learn. I have the passages up here for you to look at for further study. You can jot those down so you can read them yourselves. But this is what we glean from Matthew. First, that he was wealthy. He had a lot of wealth. A wealthy man. What else? He had become a disciple of Jesus. This is amazing. The plot thickens, right? He's a member of the Sanhedrin, but he's also a disciple of Jesus of Jesus the very people of the Sanhedrin are plotting to arrest and to discredit and to kill he's coming to believe and he came to believe the tomb that Joseph places Jesus's body in was his own tomb a new tomb tombs were not inexpensive he had wealth and this shows his wealth what else does it show? It shows that Joseph was responsible. He had likely gotten this tomb in preparation for his own passing at some point in time. Much like many will do now, they will purchase their plots to help, help their family not have to go through those kind of decisions later on in life. Joseph had done some planning. What does Mark show us that's unique about Joseph? It says not just that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but a prominent member. That changes things a little even, doesn't it? He was a higher up. He had weight and respect and trust in the Sanhedrin council. There are 70 individuals, but he stood out as a prominent member. What else does Mark tell us? He was bold, for he boldly went to Pilate. And we'll explore why in a minute, why that was a bold act. John, he tells us that Joseph was fearful of the Jewish leaders. Now I find it interesting in my research and preparation for this message, a lot of commenters start to start to treat this almost as a knock to Joseph. Like, ha, look at that. Yeah, let's bring him down a little bit. He was fearful of the Jewish leaders. Perhaps we can, we say he shouldn't have been fearful of, of, of mankind and we understand that. But at the same time, doesn't this, t- to me at least, make him feel more human and relatable? Because consider his situation. He became a follower of the very ones they were plotting to kill. He, he was hearing all of their plans for what they were going to do to him and the people who followed him and trusted him. I would be afraid of them too. Okay, that's a very human response. It's a cause for fear. What else does John teach us? He did not act alone. John alone tells us that Nicodemus was with him. This is interesting because Nicodemus is the only other named secret disciple of the Sanhedrin that we get. We know he visited Jesus in the night earlier on, and and here Nicodemus, he's alongside him. In fact, I almost feel bad I've made him even more of an unsung hero because I'm not really talking about him. But he's really along for the ride this whole time, okay? So Joseph... Is with Nicodemus. He was another faithful member of the council. And so, what we start to see here is what makes Joseph of Arimathea a hero. It's not just the heroic things he does, it's the heroic state of his heart. And here are some of those traits of him the boldness of Joseph was mentioned. Requesting Jesus's body was indeed incredibly bold. It was bold because it would inevitably identify Joseph with Jesus and his followers. Being a prominent member of the council, making this request would have serious consequences. You see, he risked his reputation, his position, his status, even his life by doing so. Do you remember the bloodlust of the council and the crowd when the shouts of crucify him rang out? Yeah, that's what he was facing. It was so strong, that wave of hatred for Jesus, that even Peter, even with the warning, still denied him three times. And yet Joseph, in boldness, went to Peter or excuse me, Pilate. He was fearful of the Jewish leaders until he wasn't anymore. Until it was time for him to act. Until it was time for him to step up at the very time all the other disciples had fled. Not only that, but usually only a relative or a close friend would request the body in a situation such as this. Our best guess on why Mary, mother of Jesus, didn't ask was because she was too distraught to do so. There was a very short amount of time for things to happen to get Jesus's body prepared. We'll talk about that in a minute. And all of Jesus's disciples, except for John, fled. And John likely was just caring for the distraught Mary because Jesus had, from the cross, just placed Mary under his care. But Joseph who had previously feared the leaders, he stepped up when he was needed. He stepped up when it counted and as God had arranged. Joseph of Arimathea was waiting for the kingdom of God and he acted in the right time and the right way and to the right degree to bring glory to God. See, it was necessary for Christ to go to the cross. Jesus says that himself. He even has his heartfelt prayer of, if there's any other way, may it be so. But not my will, but yours. And it was the only way. That cup was not taken from him. It was necessary for Christ to go to the cross, meaning it was necessary that Joseph vote against but not stand in the way of the Sanhedrin. And as Christ had no property, no home, no estate to pay for his grave, The king of kings was destined to be buried in a communal grave of thieves, of criminals, of lawbreakers, of sinners. But Joseph had the means, and even more so the heart and the courage to go in the face of those he previously feared to give the king a proper burial. And having done so, the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 9 was fulfilled, which says, He had done no wrong, that's Jesus. He had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. Contradictory statements, but a prophecy proven true. Just one of many from the Old Testament. A prophecy that would have made people wonder, how would a criminal be buried in a rich man's grave? Joseph knew the Old Testament. I wonder if as he approached Pilate, if this verse rang in his mind and things started to solidify and steal his courage for the action he would take? I don't know, but I wonder. Now we all have, meaning us, we all have a part to play in our own way, in God's own timing. We all have a certain position. We all have influence. We all have resources that are to be used all to the glory and the service of God. Joseph, he was a secret disciple until he wasn't. Is there some area of your life where you've been a secret disciple? And perhaps God is calling you out to no longer be in secret. Take that to the Lord in prayer and seek his wisdom and his guidance around that question. Joseph was willing to put aside his comfort, his protection, to cast aside even his reputation, his status, to do what was right. And as God called him, he spoke against, he stepped up and out. He gave generous without fears of the powers that be. So how might God be positioning you, calling you to step up, to step out in faith through the fear to give God glory? God longs to use you as he used his servant Joseph. See, God used Joseph's position to see his plan fulfilled. And it wasn't just his wealth, but he had an untarnished and prominent enough position within the council that Pilate granted him Jesus' body. You see, Pilate was not going to just give the body of Jesus to anyone because they had already heard that, that Jesus had said some things about maybe coming back. And they were fearful of Jesus coming back. And though they didn't believe him to be the Messiah, they did position guards outside his grave because they thought the disciples were going to steal his body away because they wanted that to be the proof that, you see, Jesus is back. He, he rose. Pilate would not give the body to anyone. But Joseph had enough of a reputation. He had a status. He had the position that Pilate could trust him with Jesus's body. He could, Joseph had to have been honorable enough that they could trust him to do what was appropriate with Jesus's body. You see, God will use your position to see his plans fulfilled too. Whether you're a student, you're a retiree, whether you own a business, you work at Pfizer, or you're, you're, you're in the schools, wherever you are, God will work in and through you, to see his plan fulfilled. What are you called to do? What has God called us to do? He's called us to be faithful to what is right in front of us, to right where he has placed us. If you think of it, there is kingdom opportunity everywhere you look. Now back to Joseph. We know what he did, but imagine what it must have felt like to do what he did. The emotion. He took the broken, the bruised, the battered, the blood-stained body of our Savior, took him off that cross. That could not be an easy task. He carried him down, transported him all the way to the grave. And then he embalmed Jesus' body. The idea of embalming, it was to keep air away from the body and to delay decay. They wrapped linen strips around the body, layer upon layer, and as they went from head to toe, they would then dab it with the embalming ointment, which would then harden. Now, in embalming, if a person was not dead yet already, the process surely would guarantee their death. Be not If not just from suffocation, from the entire process. You see, the act of embalming Jesus was not just a grace-filled act of Joseph, which it absolutely was. It was also a further proof of Jesus' actual death. And that is important. And once they finished embalming Jesus, as he laid in the new stone-cut cut tomb, Joseph with Nicodemus, they leveraged the stone in front of the entrance, the stone that likely weighed about two tons. And we know later on the Roman guards, they sealed that stone and they posted, a legion of guards in front. Now, not only did he and Nicodemus do this, they were pressed for time. Okay, it says that Jesus, Jesus had had died about the ninth hour and all work must cease at the twelfth hour at the beginning of the Sabbath. Okay, that was about a three-hour window. That is not a lot of time to do what they had to do. Because of that short window, there was likely more work to be done, and that is why the women would return to the tomb at the beginning, the first day of the week, the day in which the resurrected Christ first appears. And you can start to see God's planning and his timing over all these things, even down to the hour of Jesus' death. And Joseph honored the Lord in the aftermath of his greatest shame. He covered him after he had been laid bare. He cared for his body when he was all alone. And he participated in the wonder of the resurrection by doing everything necessary and appropriate in one's death. His acts of service gave profound proof to the certainty of Christ's death which was essential in the power and the proclamation of the truth of the resurrection. There is no way what Joseph and Nicodemus did was not witnessed. There is no way that word of Joseph's acts didn't get back to the rulers and the leaders. And when those Roman guards were set in front of the tomb, there is no way they didn't realize that that was Joseph's tomb. Afraid of the leaders? No more. Secret disciple? No more like a lot of these faithful followers of Jesus, we don't get any more follow-up from Joseph after this. Don't you just long to know the rest of his story? There's no mention in all the book of Acts. Now there's a lot of speculation. You can do some research. There's a lot of thought about what happened, but, but his word doesn't tell us anything about him. There's no proof. The greatest guess we could have is either he joined in the work of the disciples we read about in Acts, though it would be surprising not to hear account of that, or he was imprisoned and/ or killed. Another would be kind of shocking not to hear that, and yet we're left to wonder. But this Joseph, he underwent such a heartbreaking act and while doing so, revealed the depth of his love for Jesus. His love compelled him to act. And that is the call of every disciple of Jesus Christ. Our love for our Savior ought to compel us to act. So are we willing? When our number's up, will we boldly step forward and say, I'm here, send me. Joseph, at this time, was the guy. This was his time. He had the heart, he had the gifts, he had the means, he had the willingness to serve God for such a time as this. And God worked in him as Joseph worked through his fear to step out in faith. Like all of our unsung heroes, Joseph would have had no idea how God was going to work in and through him. He was simply being faithful to what was right in front of him. And you have no idea what God is doing in and through you. No idea. So will you, along with me, seek to be faithful to what is right in front of us? Where do you need to take a bold step forward in faith today? And where do you need to stop worrying about what others may think and seek to please the only one who is sitting on the throne. May our love for the author of love compel us to act. Don't follow the crowd. Follow Jesus and trust in his timing. That's what our Savior asks of us. That's what makes normal, everyday folks like you and me heroic, heroic. Because when we act on faith, we no longer act on our own power, but on the power of the one who conquered death. People are heroic, not really because of what they do, but what God does through them. May we all here today be willing and ready vessels for the Lord to do his kingdom work. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we give you thanks. Give you thanks for your servant Joseph, for Nicodemus, for all the faithful followers that we don't even know their names. For each of us here, God, for the faithful ways we follow you, the days we are spurred on in boldness to step toward you and to serve you. God, we long to be your humble servants. We long to be in a position where we are ready and willing to go as you call us, to move as you lead us. And God, as we do so, we recognize it's not our breath in our lungs, but yours. It's not our spirit of will, but your Holy Spirit within us. And it's not our dreams that are fulfilled but your life-altering, kingdom-shaking, good and perfect dreams. We thank you that you invite us in to your story of greatness, of redemption, of reconciliation. God, we long to work toward your good so that all the earth might proclaim you as Lord and Savior. Our innermost being longs For your name to be known and worshiped. So, like Joseph, God, may you prepare us, provide for us, equip us, embolden us, and send us as you ordain. May it be so for each of us here today. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's stand.